Well, hello and welcome to another Pinch Cut Opera pre-opera podcast. Um, if you're listening to this, it means you're either on your way or intending to go to the winter season of Pinch Cut Opera for 2022, which is a new work and a new composer. Chesty, the Italian. The, actually, <laughs> Chesty kind of describes how I sound. My name is Genevieve Lang. I often appear on ABC Classic and today... Erin Helliard and uh, in a moment, Constantine Costi sitting down with me, but we're doing this via Zoom because as you can hear, I'm a little under the weather and I'm not going to be the person who brings this production down by passing on the bug to everybody else. Not the bug, just a bug. But Erin Helliard, thank you for um, joining me this morning via Zoom for a little bit of a chat, a little bit of insight into Oren Taya. Hi, Erin, I wanted to ask you first. Um, Chesty is a new composer. Antonio Chesty is a new composer for Pinchgut. You are once again bringing to life a long-neglected work. How did you settle on the choice of Orentea? Well, Orentea um, was one of the most popular operas of the 17th century, and our audiences have been lucky enough to see the other opera that was the most performed uh, opera of the 17th century. So two operas, I think, vie for this um for this medal of being the most popular, and that is Cavalli's Giazzone, which we presented quite some years back, um, and this work, Orentea by Chesti. And uh, so I'm really excited that that was partly the reason I chose the work, because I, I like programming works that had uh, a popularity back in the past. Mainly is a challenge to see whether or not that popularity extends to today, and in all cases it does. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And by popular back in the day, I mean, Orentea experienced something like 17 revivals before the end of the 17th century. Is that right? That's right. Even more than that. I mean, each of those revivals ah. had, you know, 24 shows or something like that. So 17 separate re remountings. And that's extraordinary because in the 17th century, as you know, they just preferred new works, a lot like pop music today, you know. You just get uh, bands just kept writing new music, just like Chesty kept writing new music. So it's really extraordinary that a work like Orentea received um, so many, so much attention all over Europe. And it wasn't, it was one of the operas that wasn't conceived of for Venice. Is that right? That's right. We, we call it a Venetian opera, Genevieve, because it's in that style. So we might talk about a little bit, but Oriente is very similar to all the other Venetian operas um, that came out by Monteverdi and then his pupil Cavalli. Um, but yes, you're right, it wasn't premiered in Venice. It premiered in a court in Innsbruck um, where Chesty uh, received a plum job that was especially made for him under the Archduke Carl Ferdinand. So it's a, it's a masterpiece. He wrote it only at the age of 33, which is really extraordinary. And was it his first opera? No. So Chesty's a really interesting person. He came from an extremely poor family. Um, and one of the few avenues for the children of poor families were religious orders. And so he actually started out his life in the, Francis in the Franciscan order as a monk. Um, but at the monastery, very soon, his uh, predilection for music became apparent. And it was actually under the patronage of the Medici family that he found his way to the operatic stage. And he was a wonderful singer. So unlike Monteverdi and Cavalli, other Venetians we know from that period, uh, Chesti was actually a singer. Monteverdi and Cavalli were actually organists first and foremost. And I think you can hear this in Orentea. You hear that Chesti knew and understood the human voice 
intricately. And his predilection as a composer is to always accent lyrical beauty and melodiousness and tunefulness. And so the whole score is just soaked in lyricism. Um, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, in any case, Chesty's career soon as an opera singer soon sort of rubbed against his uh, religious orders and he was embroiled in many scandals. Um, there were rumours that he was having an affair with another singer. Um, and it was actually, he tried, he had to go to Rome to visit the Pope to try and get out of his uh, monastic orders uh, later in his life. Um, but it is interesting, of course, because the other famous uh, a composer that we know who was also involved in as a, as a priest was, of course, Vivaldi. So it wasn't an uncommon thing for Italian musicians to be involved in monastic orders as well as being a composer or a, or a singer. But in Chesty's case, I think all the scandal just helped cement his popularity. And by the late 20s, he was basically the most famous composer in Venice. Fascinating. And you alluded to the sort of uh, lineage from Monteverdi to Cavalli down to Chesti. What did Chesti do differently to his predecessors? That's a great question. Yeah, so look, unlike Cavalli and Monteverdi, Chesti was born into opera, meaning he was one of that generation of composers who actually grew up with opera in public theatres. You know, as we know, Monteverdi invented opera. It started at court and then it became public in the 1630s. And Cavalli too, you know, was at the very beginning of opera, but Chesty's slightly different. He, he grew up with the genre. And so for him, it must have been much more natural um, and idiomatic perhaps than those composers I've mentioned. So in any case, uh, what's interesting about, about Venetian opera of the early 17th century is it started to evolve in kind of patterns. So, and we call them conventions. They're, they're sort of set scenes that you find in almost all, all Venetian operas. And they were set by composers like Monteverdi and Cavalli and other librettists at the time. And they're things like, there's always a lament. There's always a scene where someone is sleeping and there might be a lullaby. There's always a love duet. There's always a scene where music or dance is somehow theatricalized. And so audiences got used to seeing these tropes, these conventions. And by the 1650s, they were getting a little tired. And I think that what is so special about Chesti and also Ciccognini, who wrote the libretto for Orentea, is that they refresh those conventions rather than just trotting out the same sort of scenes that you might have seen at other theatres with other composers. They, they certainly use the same conventions, but they subvert them. For example, there's a really, um, the first thing that comes to mind is the very first lament in the show is actually not a lament at all. It's a, a, a song of love uh, from Salandra to Aladoro, and she's just dumped her lover, Corindo. And the fact that it's a lament makes it really spooky, and it actually kind of prefigures the fact that this love that she is singing of for Aladoro is ultimately doomed to fail. And that's, I've never seen that in a Venetian opera before. That's really quite clever and psychological. And the other one that I can think of off the top of my head, there are many more. Um, our audiences can pick them up as they come. Um, but there is a wonderful, there are two sleeping scenes in this opera, not one. And the first one is quite, quite unusually for a lower class character. That's Gelone played by the wonderful Andrew O'Connor. And he's sleeping not because he's tired or he's been given a sleeping, you know, potion, which is often what happened, but because he's drunk. And that is quite, <laughs> quite interesting that a lower class character is given this upper class convention. And he's given some beautiful music as well. But, of course, the most famous sleeping scene 
of all the 17th century is actually in Act Two of Orientaria. It takes place after the sleeping of Gelone, the drunk. And that is the great set piece for Orientaria at the end of Act Two. And that's when she comes across Alidora, who's over, who's fainted, basically. And she outpours, uh, she pours out her love for him over his sleeping body. And it's just the most extraordinary scene for uh, Orientaria. Uh, who's played in this production by the great Australian mezzo Anna Dowsley. So, yeah, Chesty really, uh, Chesty and Ciccolini, I could say, both in tandem really worked to refresh these conventions, to, to, to revitalise clichés, and I think that's the reason it was so popular. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I feel so much smarter just listening to you talk, Erin, and I'm sure all our <laughs> listeners do too. When I think about the music of Cavalli, um, on first hearing, it just feels like a lot of recitative, that sort of rapid speech-like song that progresses the action but you don't stop for an aria because that convention hasn't been invented yet. Does, but but within Cavalli you get those tiny little moments of ariete, you know, the, well, you know, obviously, the um, sort of single phrases that might be considered a whole aria. Does Chesty do anything to extend that idea? Absolutely, yeah. I referred to his predilection for for melodiousness and 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 tunes, and certainly he uses the aria type as you refer to so beautifully. This 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 brief outpouring of song in a sort of metrical way. What what we probably associate opera to be nowadays, but of course it was actually a new invention along with all the other things in opera back in the 1630s. And you're right, the, the main thrust of the drama was such that it was just uh, what we might, I, I don't say just because it's equally as powerful and, and dramatic um, and musical, the, the recitative, the, the, what they call the stile recitando, the, the speaking style. And that's reflected in, you know, the first opera goers, you know, wrote to their friends and said, oh, I'm going off to see a play, but everyone's singing their words. It's going to be nuts. And that's basically <laughs> what these Venetian operas were. They're, 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 they're heightened speech. It's heightened and deepened by music. And indeed, Chesty is now part of that generation that uses aria more. So some of our audiences who, who've heard our Cavalli, uh, and most recently the Apollo and Daphne, um, we'll, we'll hear in Chesty, who's just a little bit later, this, it's a much more, there, there are more moments for these, these tunes, these arias, um, and as such it makes it sound a little bit more, I want to say, modern. Um, it, it looks forward into the future uh, when opera is nothing but aria and the recitative is very much cut mm. off um, from, from those moments. Um, the other thing that Chesty does uh, so beautifully is he uses the orchestra a little bit more than, than his colleagues. And I, I think that's actually reflective of the fact that when he premiered this at Innsbruck, he had a, uh, the court orchestra played in the opera house and uh, it was uh, slightly larger than the very tiny orchestras that they used in Venice to, to, to you know, minimise costs. Um, so he, he uses the, it's just two violins, but there is a wonderful moment where one of the lower class characters actually breaks the fourth wall and commands the orchestra to play. And ah. he names all these instruments, which are quite extraordinary. Um, and we have them all. He names recorder, he names an organ, he names percussion, he uh, names uh, a particular plucked instrument called a cetera. Um, so it's kind of fun to see these things um, in the score and, and just make, uh, you know, some deductions on how it was at the time of the premiere. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, I can't wait. And 
from what I understand it, I mean, reading the libretto, and I'm I'm not going to complicate things now by stepping through it, but it is chaotic and people's affections seem to turn on a dime. I think it sounds like a really fun night out. So I'm joined now by the director for this year's winter season for Pinchgut Operas, Oren Taya, Constantin Costi. Con, thank you for joining me and also for uh, pivoting as we have had to onto Zoom for this uh, chat. But I wanted to ask you first uh, to do a little bit of show and tell with us because I think it's always interesting with directors of opera to just briefly find out where that seed was planted. What was the first opera you remember seeing? God, I came to opera really, really late. I mean, I grew up with a love of musical theatre, who is the sort of, you know, the close relative of opera and often those boundaries are kind of blurred between the two forms, in my opinion. But um, I was supposed to exposed to opera when I studied directing at NIDA and was lucky enough to be taught by Elkin Needhart, who um, sort of exposed me to that world. I remember took me to a production of Yevgeny Onyegin by Tchaikovsky and then suddenly the world of opera in its sort of beauty and potential opened up to me and that was a complete game changer. Wow. And you've really been rolling in opera for a long time. Most recently with Pinchgut, um, you directed the Made for Streaming opera, if I can give it a a new genre name, um, A Delicate Fire. What was that experience like? Oh, that was, I mean, one of the highlights of my career. It was, number one, just the most bold and brave exercise for Pinched Up Opera to go, let's take over this. It was an abandoned Subaru factory (laughs) in the middle of the field that we turned into a bespoke film studio for two weeks and um, made this, yeah, as you said, this uh, made-for-streaming opera film. And it was, like, totally exciting. And also there was an element of... um, on my end going, this isn't about, you know, uh, uh, we're filming a concert with, uh, you know, two cameras. It was really about making something extremely cinematic and uh, impressionistic and going, how can the form of film and all the things that film can do suit opera and suit that material and serve that material? So it was just like completely exciting. And I, I look back on it and go, I can't believe we pulled that off. Had you worked um, with film before? Yeah, so I studied film at UTS and all of my films were really theatrical and over the top. <laughs> and so I thought, of it, okay, maybe, you know, I'm not really one to make gritty Australian drama. Um, so I definitely am much more inspired by like, you know, people like Baz Luhrmann or the filmmakers in the golden age of Hollywood who were doing something both cinematic but also highly theatrical at the same time. Yeah, beautiful. And so moving then into the theatre with Oren Taya, I wanted to ask, you what is your relationship to the music of this opera yeah it's really interesting because I I don't really believe in listening to particularly baroque opera at home I think it needs to be theatricalized and seen live to get the most out of the music so what I kind of discover is that as I'm putting things, I mean, the be- look, there's beautiful pieces. It's absolutely stunning and it's witty and inventive, but the way it is sort of 
electrifies itself into life and you hear the music in a different way is when it's embodied by people on stage with different relationships. And then you get all of this incredible colouring and detail and uh, vocal intimacy and depth. So for me, it's really about everything merges together and the music and the theatricality and the movement really come together as a, as a total work and a total piece. So that's been my discovery of the music, really going, aha, now it's coming to life as we're seeing it on the floor. That's fascinating, Con, because in an earlier conversation with Aaron, he uh, he really advocated not to, to not listen to this music, not just purely yeah. listen to it, but to experience it in the theatre. And it sounds like you're very well, much on the same page. Yeah, it's always good when the director and the conductor cohere, <laughs> so that, that's great to hear. Like every good libretto, I think, the plot here is pretty implausible with the speed with which various characters, Orantea, Salandra, um, Alidoro, shift their affections from one to another and back again. So I wanted to ask you, how do you approach this as a director? Okay, this is this is the million dollar question, right? So you read this and it's like, it's hilarious because, and this isn't like a, a, a new idea or a new trope in music from, you know, the, the, the 17th century. So like someone walks into a room and goes, hey, I'm a painter on the run. And then two beats later, someone who already has a lover turns around and goes, oh my God, I love you, I'm obsessed with you, right? <laughs> so it's, it's like love at first sight, you know, at a million miles an hour. And beyond that being funny, I'm always, you know, with me and my, my team, when we're conceiving what we're going to do with this, I'm always interested in that. Well, what's the logic here, right? How are all these people falling in love with each other and getting obsessed with each other so quickly? And there was a lot of sleepless nights in terms of us going, how can we conceptualize this? And um, we went back to the prologue. So the whole opera starts with an embodiment of Amore or Cupid having an argument with the embodiment of philosophy. And they're saying, who is greater? Who has more power? Who is more virtuous? And it ends with this like very small line at the end where Amore says, I am going to fly to Orantea's court to prove you wrong. And we went, okay, that's the idea. So Amore is going to be in every scene who is using these people in the court as a way of testing his power. So it is Amore's doing, much like the little marionettes. And Amore is proving that he can make people fall in love instantly, make them obsessed with each other, make them cheat on each other, make them fall in love, um, you know, through his power. And what was really, what's become really interesting beyond that being a way of justifying everybody becoming infatuated with each other, there's something really deeply truthful and human about that because when you are in love, you do feel like there's a force guiding you or a force making you crazy or that's beyond your control. You know, these works were written pre-Freud. So there's a kind of bigger idea at play, which is like these feelings and these sort of overwhelming emotions that we all experience when you fall for someone, when you go goo goo gaga for someone. <laughs> You're like, not me, you know, who, who is it? And so it is this force of love, whatever that means is embodied. So I think in solving a practical issue, we opened up something that I think is really interesting, which is the overwhelming force of love. I love that entire poetic notion, but as I hear you talk, I can't help adding in a very sort of salty and prosaic idea that, in fact, we are biologically wired for love. When we meet yes. someone and there's a, a, a chemistry there, it is, in fact, oxytocin, serotonin and dopamine that are being released into our bodies from our brains that tell us this is someone that we're drawn to. <laughs> that's, such a, that's such a 21st century notion. 
Totally. And I mean, you know, what's funny, what I find, what I find personally funny about love, not to divulge too much about my personal life, is that you go in knowing all of these things, that yes, this is potentially an evolutionary biological construct to make me stick with a partner for the tribe to sort of continue on. But when you're in the thick of it, all of those sort of like heady um, logical notions go out the window. You yeah. know? And I think that's what's so pleasurable and exciting is that I, I know one thing, but I do another, right? And that's the beauty and sort of the peril and the pain and the joy of being a human being, which is what this opera is all about. Yes, exactly. Now, uh, our leading lady, Anna Dowsley, and Aladoro, uh, Orontaya and Aladoro, Jonathan Abernathy from New Zealand, playing those two roles, are married in real life and they have a little baby girl. Is there any part of you as a director that wanted to play or introduce some ideas from the real-life um, circumstances of their marriage? Um, well, I mean, look, it does make my life a little bit easier when you're doing love scenes, I must say. I'm like, oh, and okay if Jono touches your shoulder at this point? Like, uh, yeah, I think we'll be fine. So that that makes sort of into this direction kind of, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of shortcuts there. But um, it's kind of the opposite, actually. I need to get a sense that they don't know each other, that they're falling in love with each other and that there's mystery. And, you know, they've been together for quite a while and are a very close and loving partner. And I kind of want to refine the danger in that in that initial connection when you meet someone for the first time. So um, that's been an interesting headspace to go into, being like, forget everything you know about each other. This has to feel new and fresh and um. And yeah, kind of sexy and exciting. Yeah. Well, I would love to pose the question to them too then, uh, is that their experience of the rehearsal process. And, and I imagine there would be a risk on stage of moments where they just lapse and end up accidentally holding hands. I know, right? I'm often saying too romantic. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Constantine Costi, I cannot wait to see this production of Orientea. And uh, I have one last question before I let you go back to rehearsals. Mm. When you're tackling mm. comedy, what are the pitfalls for a director? There's so many. I mean, there is this sort of strange idea that like something serious and something dramatic has more artistic importance and resonance than a comedy because a comedy is so sort of lighthearted and can be easily assessed as to whether it works or not because people either laugh or they don't. But I think when I see and what I aspire to is a sharp, well-done comedy, it is the craft of it is so difficult, so minute in order to hone in and to get the tone right. And I think there's a few pitfalls, you know, uh, for characters not to kind of play the gag, but to stay in character, which is very easy to lapse into. And also, I think it really is about everything grounded in an element of heart and conceivable absurdity. That's what I'm interested in, that it's not so wacky and it's not so over the top that like, I think an audience needs to have a sort of a sense of um, relating to things that happen, whether you are the person who is being made a fool of in an instance or whether you're the person laughing on. I think, you know, I think the whole, there's an element of absurdity and comedy to being a human being, like we're ridiculous creatures. And I think there is a sort of like an existential idea in, in going for the laugh. Yeah, fantastic. All right, Constantine Costi, thank you so much. Thanks, Heath Genevieve.